Welcome to D&D Roundtable, your premier source for D&D news. We cover everything D&D from Wizards of the Coast. We cover updates from the convention circuit. We cover new and exciting products, cast and streams, and events for D&D. We cover happenings in organized play. If it's D&D related, we cover it here. There are a lot of subscription services out there that deliver things right to your door these days. Veggies, movies, meat, pet toys, artisanal jams, collectibles, RPGs, pictures of cool places, music, butter, dice. Wait, what? There is literally only one thing on that list that would make my life complete. A monthly subscription service for dice? Dice Envy has subscription services for dice. They send you a unique set every single month right to your house. Go check out their subscriptions. Or if you just want to go buy some of their unique and interesting dice, head over to DiceEnvy.com and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. Welcome to the D&D Roundtable. All the news that's going on with Dungeons & Dragons and other RPGs in small amounts. Today we have a special guest, Robert Schwab. He is our only guest tonight, and this is the only show we've done yet that has only one guest because Schwab has so much to say. We're super excited to talk to him and learn more about his life and his work. So without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce Robert Schwab. Robert? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your history with D&D and with RPGs in general. Uh, I feel like you're one of the most underrated guys in the business because you do so much and not nearly enough people know your name. So uh, so introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, first of all, thank you so very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. And... Uh, yeah, so I've been stomping around in RPG land for almost 17 years, somewhere in there. Um, I was a, a little nerd long ago who discovered the Red Box and played D&D for the first time through uh, Keeping the Borderlands and the Caves of Chaos. Uh, my parents uh, terrified that Satan was going to get me through uh, killing monsters and stuff. Uh, forbid me from playing D&D anymore, so I switched over to playing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and Twilight 2000 and Rollmaster and a variety of other role-playing games. And uh, in that time, um, I, got a, it, it, I became uh, completely enamored with the entire RPG experience. 
and um, yeah, so that was that. And then um, I guess I was I dropped out of college, got back into college, and got out of college again. And I was selling liquor and hardwood floors and ceramic tile. And there was an open call for uh, writers. This is early on, uh, third edition era. And I pitched a couple books. Those books were purchased. I pitched a few more books to other companies and landed a job at Green Ronin, which eventually landed me a gig with working with uh, Wizards of the Coast through the latter days of 3.5. And then I became a uh, contract designer for Wizards of the Coast throughout the life of 4th edition and helped bring 5th edition into being. In a snap, that, that, that's pretty much the, the long and short of it. So I have about a thousand more questions to ask, which is great because we've got, you know, a while to talk. Sure. So did you grow up in Tennessee? I know you live there now. Oh, hell no. No, no. Well, I did grow up in Tennessee, but um, it only t it's taken me almost 30 years to claim that I am uh, I'm a native. Mm -hmm. uh, I was born in Smithtown, Long Island, New York. Uh, lived there till 1979. My parents traveled from there to Grand Rapids, Michigan. We were there until 1984, 85, somewhere in there. And then we journeyed to the deep south, or not the deep, deep south, but it was it was deep enough that there was a gag reflex hit. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah. Uh, that so, was so you encountered the red box while you were in Michigan then? No, I, I got Redbox when I was in sixth grade uh, here. Um, okay. Yeah, and it was it was glorious. I'm uh, not gonna lie, I'm pretty surprised by that. Really? You just found a Redbox randomly in the Bible Belt. Well, so here's the deal: is that I knew about D and D when I was living in Michigan, and I was so hungry to play. Uh, my best friend at the time and I went to go see the Dungeon Master movie in theaters having no idea what it was about, and it really wasn't anything about D&D. You should look it up, kids at home. You should look up the Dungeon Master movie. It is terrible. But anyway... <laughs> I was going to uh, say, I've never heard of it nor seen it. It can't be that great. Well, it, it, had, it was released like three times. One of the versions was Digital Knights, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, I, I still didn't have D&D, but I had an idea what D&D was, and uh, my, my neighbor, Kyle... I uh, had a copy of the Adventure Module Rahazia by Tracy and Laura Hickman, and he sold it to me for a quarter, and I looked at it, read it back front to back and back to front, and I was able to build a role-playing game based on what I was able to tease out of how the rules worked in that adventure, and ran that for a while until somebody said, took pity on me and said, Hey asshole! Uh, here's how D and D really works. And so you I, reversed engineered D and D from a mod. Yeah, I think that does not surprise me. Like that is just how your brain works. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that's pretty much what he does. Yeah. So that is really cool. I I did not know that. Uh, so so like many of us, you went to college maybe a couple of times, got a job that was designed to destroy your soul because so many jobs are. Right. How how did you? So obviously, you know, you didn't just jump out of the the hardwood floors and liquor business and into D and D, you know, whole whole career. But what was the decision making process like to say 
I'm going to quit my liquor and hardwood floors job and I'm going to write games for real for the rest of my life. Because, like, in a way, you're kind of living the dream that so many of us want to live. It's like, I'm going to quit my real job because it makes me miserable and then I'm going to just write games for a living. Like, it's really hard. And I just I just want to know how you, how you did it. Well, you know, um, the big thing was was that I never thought that I was going to do this for long. Um, I started off thinking that I was going to be a, a great American novelist, like a bunch of other people who graduate with an English degree and a philosophy degree think. And uh, but I also was a super big D and D nerd. And you know, back in those days, uh, I was reading Ian World every day. It was my homepage for. I, I think probably the first half of my professional career where every time I'd open it up, I would get the, the news. I knew every third party publisher who was producing D D and D compatible content at that time. I could tell you who they were, what they produced and my shelves are still full of all of that fun stuff. Anyway. So, um, nothing to kind of scoff at as far as third edition and 3.5 go. There were more things out there than, anyone could really conceive of. Right, and I read everything. Uh, and it really, and it, 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 and it, part of it was, was motivated by the fact that, and this, is, this sounds crass, but it was also a tax write-off. However, I was making negative dollars every year for the first couple of years I was working in the business anyway, so it really didn't matter. Yeah, so I didn't think I was going to do this for, for reals, uh, and I think it was just sheer persistence and self-loathing that allowed me to get to do it for reels. Uh, there was so much of that early time of just going to conventions and handing out business cards and begging for work and doing that over and over again that eventually I got to a point where I was able to get enough work to sustain it. Now keep in mind that this is, uh, this is back in a time, and it's still pretty much true today, when you're making two to four cents a word for any project you'd get. And that is a punishing, punishing way to make a living because there's just not a lot of money there. You spend, if you write 40,000 words for your book and you're making $800 or whatever, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, but, uh, it, it, it got better, right? I mean, it, it, it certainly did. Uh, and part of it was landing a job with the Ronins or the Ronins, uh, which allowed me to kind of do this even to do this legitimately. So you worked for Green Running, and then you worked uh, kind of more or less freelance for Wizards of the Coast. Or were you full time there? Uh, so it was over. There was there was a bit of overlap. Well, I was at the, well, I was with the Runines. Uh, my job originally was hired to be the D twenty line developer, and I oversaw the advanced rule books and a bunch of the races of renown series, the master class series, and a bunch of other things. And then. Um, Chris Premis had hired me because he was taking over design for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition, which is hard to believe that's two editions ago. But anyway, uh, he, we were doing that, and so I had to ta I take the, took the responsibility of managing the D20 line while Steve Kenson was managing the Mutants and Masterminds line. Uh, that job eventually ballooned into me taking over Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and then me designing Song of Ice and Fire Roleplaying. And while I was doing all this, I was still freelancing at the same time. And uh, there was a Gen Con where Rodney Thompson, dear friend of mine, creator of uh, Destiny Outlaws and 
uh, a co-creator of Lords of Waterdeep, introduced me to Chris Perkins. Chris Perkins came over and said, hey, we, we met, we shook hands. It seemed the romance was blossoming. And uh, I got home, and the next thing I knew, I had a contract to write a big chunk of uh, Tome of Magic for a third edition. And that became this long love affair with D&D professionally that lasted for a number of years. So, so, but at some point in time there, you decided, hey, I'm going to kind of go my own way. I'm going to do create my own game, Shadow of the Demon Lord. I'm going to run my own company and do my own Kickstarter, sell my own books. How, how did you know the time was right for that? Uh, it was more of a situation where I didn't have a choice. Um, so one of the things that, uh, and I know if, if, you're a, if you're new to D&D by way of 5th edition, you probably don't recall the release schedule and the aggressive release schedule of 4th and 3rd, where every month there were two to three products. And in 3rd edition, that was sometimes two or three hardback books every month. And fourth edition was it was more reasonable, but you also had the magazines, and so there was a plenty of content coming out every month. Um, when I was working on fifth edition, uh, it, my job was to design to kind of it, it was was originally to design a, a good chunk of the game, and then also to come back in and later on uh, to do to fill in the, the fill in spaces, right? So the, somebody needs to write the disease rules, and so I was a guy. Or uh, somebody needs to write more magic items, I was a guy. Spells, stuff like that. Um, so once those books were pretty much well in hand, and after I finished up my work on the Monster Manual and Dungeon Master's Guide was pretty much wrapped up, uh, there wasn't really anything for me to do, so Wizards cut me loose, because there wasn't going to be uh, 40,000 words of new content coming out every month, so they didn't really need me. Uh, so I was confronted with a choice, and that choice was either to go back into freelancing again or to, um, to uh, start my own thing. And starting my own thing was the clearest route because I was able to com uh, command my own destiny, I guess. So what we did with... Uh, when I, when I went my own way, I launched a Kickstarter for Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is a, a truly awful horror fantasy role-playing game where you're playing embattled heroes in, the, in a world that's being uh, confronted by the apocalypse. And um, that kickstarted really well, and that allowed us to launch, I think right now my current total is 171 SKUs, including spell cards and all sorts of other googas. I, I think you're being too modest. That Kickstarter, like, I don't remember the number, but it was amazing. It was one of the biggest Kickstarters out there for a while. Well, it wasn't It wasn't Monty Cook level. It was, it was good enough. It was good enough. I mean, but you also, at that point in time, you were kind of just doing your own thing out there. You weren't, you also weren't, you know, hadn't been Monty Cook doing Monty Cook things for a good while. So right. for what, for, for what you were doing... I mean, even I remember it, actually. It, I, I didn't know much about RPGs at the time, um, and I had just gotten onto Kickstarter and stuff, and I was impressed. I was like, oh, man, I don't know what this is. People love it. <laughs> well, Maybe someone will teach me. Right. <laughs> you know, next time we're at a show, I should, run a, I should run Demon Lord for you, for sure. Yeah, you keep running Demon Lord when I'm running D&D. &D. Yeah. We have this problem. And Matt Jordan said he was going to teach me, 
uh, and he hasn't, and I also think he probably forgot, and sorry for calling you out like this, Matt. Coward! <laughs> hey, Matt, how are those tire tracks on your back from where the bus just hit you? Oh, man. I'll see you at Gamehole Con, Matt. Love you. <laughs> How's the cornfields in Iowa? <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I... So, I mean, I... I still feel like you're being pretty modest because you have more innings than you have a lot of innings. Like, don't don't you have like fifteen or twenty any awards? I don't know. I don't keep. I, I never kept count. Um, I have enough uh, enough that I don't need to do the innings anymore. Because my thing with the innings is that I think the innings are really good for recognizing creators who are uh, just crawling out of the soup and. As long as the NES is recognizing those people, that's great. I've been recognized enough. Uh, I've worked on some top-tier games. Uh, I don't need to... Yeah. Anyway, the point is is that, yeah, I've won enough NES. How about that? Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and you've worked in every system. Like, you've worked in, like, Star Wars and Witch Hunter and, like you said, you wrote Song of Ice and Fire, three editions of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, as well as your own game, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Like, I, I did just look uh, your name up on Amazon, and you have six pages of books. You forgot yeah. Numenera. Numenera, Arcanus. Numenera, and I worked on uh, uh, The Strange as well, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, Strange is a great game. Great game. Yeah. So uh, so let's talk a little more about what you've done with 5th edition, since that is obviously what this show is mostly about, is 5e D&D. Of course. Uh, can, you, can you talk to us like from, from the very start, your, uh, your experience with 5e? Um, so I was, I was in really, really early, uh, and this is probably more information than your audience wants, but my wife and I were having some difficulties and there was a chance that I was going to be moving to Seattle to get a regular gig and potentially insurance. And I got a phone call after my wife and I started to reconcile, um, in which the uh, was offered a spot on, on the fifth edition design team, which was back then called D&D Next. In fact, it wasn't even called D&D Next. It was called Iowa. Um, Rich Baker was leading the team. Uh, we had a really, really large team, uh, but a lot of the initial design had been done. Mike uh, had already designed a lot of the what he thought what the combat chapter would look like, and there were some clear ideas about what saving throws would look like, and bounded, uh, bounded accuracy was a big thing that was already in, uh, in place in the early days. Um, and at that time, we were still transitioning. There were, there, were, there were plundering designers from 4th edition to work on 5th. And I had been doing so much 4th edition design. I guess at some level, they thought that I was going to be the representative of the 4E era of D&D. That may or may not be true. It felt like it at the time, but in hindsight, maybe not. Anyway, so uh, that uh, lasted for a while, and then there was a big shakeup. And then Monty Cook took over as lead designer, and Bruce Cordell and I were uh, design, also designers under that umbrella. And so that became the big thing, and we announced at Winter Fantasy, and we, the, the three of us did uh, interviews and all sorts of other fun stuff. 
Um, and that lasted for a while, and Monty left to go pursue his own stuff. And so Bruce and I were back uh, in, in the design team, which then grew again. And it eventually took shape to the version of D&D that you guys are all playing right now. It was a really cool experience. Um, because the, the, thing I, the biggest takeaway from that is that everybody who worked in that game loves D&D to a level that would almost be pornographic. Uh, yeah, truth, truth. Oh, yes, absolutely. Every one of these people just adores the game. They and but everybody also has kind of their own secret way they would fix D and D for their tables. So there was a lot of a lot of clashes of ideas and design directions, and uh, and a lot of that came out with really really cool solutions. Um, you know, keeping armor class super low helps people who feel as though they have terrible luck and allows the game to still do what it does. You know, uh, there was a point when Turn Undead was a spell, and there was a point where Turn Undead was not a spell, and it just, all those kinds of fun little uh, bits that were all involved in the, in the design process. Um, one, of the, one of the fondest memories I have was when we were at Winter Fantasy that first year we announced, uh, after we announced D&D Next, and we were using a task resolution system that basically assigned skills one of four ranking or one of five rankings, which was basic expert advanced master and immortal and whether or not you had a role basically comparing your addition or your, your stage in, you know, uh, Frank Menzer D and D to the task at hand. And that came and that all that whole system came out of this conversation. Monty and I had at a, uh, I guess it was a sushi restaurant in Minneapolis, and we were talking about how we want characters to get to a point where they don't have to roll to do the things they're supposed to be doing. A mid-level thief shouldn't be worrying about padlocks anymore. Mid-level thief should just be opening those padlocks left and right. But a super complicated trap might still be beyond that character, and it was a way to model difficulty that in in a narrative way without kind of choking you with numbers like in a third edition model which was always uh your modifier beats equals or exceeds the dc of the task you're attempting you have mastery by the fact that you can then when you have 15 ranks and tumble you can move through enemy spaces without triggering it. Oh, I remember those days. Similarly, if you have 23 ranks of used rope, you win D&D. Yes, I mean, it was known. A lot of people back in the the oddies, or or maybe as late as mid-2000s, were, were winning D&D with 23 ranks in used rope. It really is a big thing. It, yeah, it's it not is. a rule, but it is, uh, you are a winner. Yep. 23 yep. ranks, used rope. You heard it here first. Pathfinder had the same kind of thing, but I can't remember what the ranking system in that is. But if you <laughs> maxed out your ranks in the fly skill, you too won Pathfinder. <laughs> oh, man. So so you put the book together. Helped. You were part of the team that put the book and the, the basic rules for 5th edition together. But since then, you've participated in every major rules update, right? So far, yeah. Um, I worked on Xanathar's Guide, which was a lot of fun. Um, what part uh, of Xanathar did you write? Uh, do, you, well, do you recall? The best parts. No, uh, well, obviously. 
<laughs> I worked on spells, and I worked on the background tables, and I worked on feats. Um, there were some other bits and pieces that got moved off to other books, but uh, those were the biggest areas where I, I also did the name tables, which was those are good fun. Yeah, they were they were good fun, but I you know it was one of those kind of moments where I was like, man, there's got to be an intern out there that can do this. But you know, it was it was fine. It, we had a good had a good time with that. I, I worked on part of Out of the Abyss. I worked a chunk of that, and I worked on Morgan Kane's Tome of Foes. Did Did you oh, write yeah. the Yinagu parts of uh, of Out of the Abyss? I just have to ask. Which part? The Yinagu, the, the uh, Demon Lord of Knowles. Uh, maybe I had the NPC named Gash because I thought that was hilarious. Uh, and there was a room with a bunch of dead angels that were petrified, if I remember right. Yeah, so I, I think you wrote my favorite chapter. So th- if I recall, and this is a long time ago for all of us, like, didn't you write the original article for Yinagu in the... God, what book was that? It was in 4th edition in the start of uh, the... Demonomicon of Eaglewiv. And I, You're, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I did write that. Yes. Uh, I, I, I did take on the mantle of being the, the guy who wrote all about the demon stuff in 4th edition because James Jacobs with, was uh, who wrote all those art entries in 3rd edition for Dragon and Dungeon Magazine uh, was with Paizo at that point. And so I, I, I uh, lifted the torch that he left behind. And he had big shoes to fill because... Jacobs is a brilliant guy, and he really, really gets evil in a way that very few people do. And he probably doesn't get the credit he deserves for that. So you wrote part of Morty's as well? I did. Uh, Morton, Morty's Tome of Foes, I'm so excited about that book. You worked on the demons, didn't you? I did. And oh, I did man, I knew it. Let me see me pull up that book. Uh, I've got it right here. I was reading through it in the playtest, and I'm like, Man, this has Rob's fingers all over it. And around yeah, it, and then just sucking the souls right out of everyone. It's great. Uh, Steve uh, Winter and I took on the bulk of all the monster design in that book. Uh, I'm not sure who the other team, the other, the other team members who wrote all the front matter stuff. Because uh, they worked separately from us. All the lore and the the chapters that kind of like talked uh, in depth about the different. Right. Yeah. So and none of the, most of that stuff is compatible with you know the with various editions of D and D anyway. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I did all sorts of I did tons and tons in this book. Um, and the burbling and. Oh, the burbling. <laughs> so, yeah, so what's your what's your process for designing a monster like that? Um, not, not screwing it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Easier I, said oh, than done. Right. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, because no matter the, I kind of have shifted, uh, a lot of my monster design philosophy and it's actually kind of evolving again. Back in the day, it was, you know, when I was first trying to get a handle on, on designing mechanics and creatures, it was, Make the monster cool and 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 be really awesome and gross. Uh, fourth edition and I, this, I know that's it's a bad word for a lot of folks out there, but man, fourth edition taught us so much about monster design 
because the biggest thing about monsters is that you want to make, they should have at least one super cool thing that makes them stand out and memorable. And 4E laid all of that tech out in a way that Game Masters could just run it without having to think too hard about what was going on. And that's more, really... For serious. Like, yeah. I loved 4E for a lot of reasons. And uh, they had it was super easy to DM, that was for sure. So easy. And you just could, you could show up with very little prep and know that you're going to have some super sexy fights because the monsters are really easy to run and you have dynamic environments that you can play with. There's all sorts of really cool bits in that. Uh, so I kind of carried a lot of that sensibility forward uh, in my 5e design to think about what's the one really cool thing that the monster can do that makes it exciting and shows at the table. And it's really easy for a lot of designers to just think, here's a big pile of spells I can give the guy. But in truth, monster, the, the, the dirty secret about all this is that a monster is going to live three rounds. And so that means you I mean, if, if the monster's lucky, it's going right. to live three rounds. But, with, you know, you want to assume the average life expectancy for, right, you might be fighting the rock octopus on the, on the way to Blinding Stone and out of the abyss, and that guy dies after not even the full round has passed. That's but you bring uh, friends as a monster. You always travel in parties. Always travel in parties is a good, good plan for monsters. But if you assume that when you're building the design, you're, you're in the math that goes that kind of underpins it is the average of what the monster can do in three rounds. And so it doesn't give you a lot of space to do something really cool. Um, I kind of think that monsters should be tougher than they are in 5th edition. I think they should be sexier and have a lot more static conditions that cause players to change up their tactics. Um, and I think that as monster design has been evolving in this edition, we're starting to see more of that. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Oh, God. Uh, I, I think so. I have my hands raised so high up in agreement that you wouldn't even believe it. All right. Yeah, the, uh, the original Monster Manual monsters, in my opinion, with a couple of thousand hours of DMing, 5e they're they're not strong enough to keep up with uh the php and they're definitely not strong enough to keep up with xenothar's guide to power creep yeah. as it is called that's why we need 40 kobolds page 40 40 40 kobolds once. yes uh like to the point where the page 82 in the dmg has the modifiers for the number of critters and how many what the multiplier is for the experience to determine if it's a deadly encounter Right. Like, I think those modifiers are so outdated uh, and inappropriate, given the current meta of the game. I mean, even, even Kobold Fight Club, which is one of the main sites people use to check the CR of an encounter, uh, has abandoned the page 82 modifiers and gone with less conservative modifiers. So they're calling fights easier than the DMG calls them. I, I just think that's where and, we are. Yeah, and I, I think that's the right the right path to take for them, because... Players, um, you know, regardless of the design intention or thing, the power level has crept up a little bit as players begin to understand the content and how to use it together and, you know, power game. <laughs> so the, mon right. the monsters are just underwhelming. And that's, that's, that for me is a, is a really frustrating problem uh, with this edition. I mean, 
because I, I think that's 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 something we sh- we probably should have anticipated from the start. Um, but I also think that part of this is also that you know, no matter how many hours of playtest we we did, and this was an open playtest process where these monsters were not designed in a vacuum. There's no ivory tower design here. Right. We, no, I was on the next playtest. Right. We put it. We put it out in a monster. We put out monster packs and. People got to play through all them, and if and we would get feedback on that. So, um, yeah, it. But I, I do think though that there is, and I, I have a very a very vivid memory of having a conversation with Monty about false precision. That when you're building a role-playing game around spreadsheets, that that's giving you an illusion of precision when in fact it's. Uh, almost inevitably going to be wrong when you have, especially when you have a raft of exceptions of how players can build their characters. And especially when they avail themselves of optional rules like feats and multiclassing and all that other stuff. You know, I'm going to interject because we're kind of on a good spot here. I'm going to go way back to what we should have started with. Our get to know you question at the beginning, which we were too excited to get right into this stuff. I just, I got excited. I'm sorry. We did, we did, really. Was, what was your favorite 5e monster? And I mean, I think that kind of probably has changed a little bit as the edition has gone on, but it kind of fits in with where we're talking right now. All right, so I, when you sent me the show notes, uh, you asked me what my favorite monster for D&D was, without saying it was 5e. So I'm going to give you two answers. Okay. That's the yeah. Uh, for, uh, for my favorite D&D monster of all time, probably, and this is only for today, it will change tomorrow, comes from the three point, I'm going to call it 2.5, Fiend Folio. And it is a monster called the Olgerstasta, which is this gargantuan maggot that's carrying in its gullet all these semi-digested undead. And in the middle of the fight, it vomits all these undead onto the battlefield, and you have to contend with that. It is a delicious monster full of just raw, unabashed horror. It's wonderful. Even the picture that they've got in the book is a Wayne Reynolds piece, if I recall. If, I think it's Wayne. Uh, and it is just wonderful. Swallows whole, breath weapon is vomiting all sorts of stomach juices. It was very inspired design. I have no idea who designed this monster, but I love it. The Older Stasta for the kids at home. As far as my I, I haven't heard of an older Sasta yeah, in a I've... long time. In a real long time. Yeah, I mean, very, yeah. It was, a, it was, it was all tied into, um, it made a big appearance in the Age of Worms campaign in Dungeon mm-hmm. Magazine. Um, as far as 5th edition monsters go, uh, I'm looking. Um I'm pretty partial to demons in general. I'm not going to fib. I kind of do like the demons. Uh, Seeing the demon lords uh, showing up in Morty's was kind of cool. I do like the Sibriax quite a bit. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Yep, yep. I I can see how that would tickle you, tickle you where you like to be tickled. But the Dybuk might be my favorite. 
it's a creature that I, I did write this one, which makes me very selfish and uh, and all that stuff. But what I thought was fun about that was that it allows you to possess a corpse and turn into a zombie that does terrifying things. So head spins around. It's very much an evil dead monster for D and D. I have not used a die buck before. You have not, or have? I have not. Haven't either. I was frantically searching for it here. Yes, same. You should. It's. It is. It is. It is. If you like Evil Dead, Ash versus Evil Dead, whatever, it's a perfect monster for that. Well, D and D Beyond is is always uh, here for me, and they do have it. It's part of Morden Canaan's, which is why I don't know it. Uh. Yeah, it was. What page is it on? I gotta go to the appendix. Oh, I'm sorry. I had a page open. Just a second ago. Let me. <laughs> That's the best part. I think I just had it. I just had it, and it is on page... Oh, wait, I forgot. We can't read these page numbers with my failing eyes. 132. Oh, man, I was so close to it until I scrolled to the back. Oh, yeah, no, I would not have spelled that right. I've seen this one, though. I liked this one. Can move. Yeah, I've never there. seen one fired in anger. I'll have to check that out. Yeah... Though with the power, like, violate corpse, that should be, like, the big, uh, the big flag that says, I belong to Rob Schwab. Yeah. This is like, you make it, you make the, you make the corpse do something unnatural, such as vomit blood, twist its head all the way around, or cause a quadruped to move as a biped. Any beast or humanoid that sees behavior must succeed in a DC-12 wisdom saving throw, become frightened for a bit. Uh, blah 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 because we're so afraid of pissing off players that we have to give them saving throws every round oh that's I said that out loud I'm sorry you did you did I, but don't I, worry but don't worry in it's natural form it just looks like a flying jellyfish it's totally totally you know not that big of a deal don't worry just get real close to it yeah you know considering fights in, in, in 5e last two to three rounds. I don't know why we have to have saving throws every round for conditions. People really don't like being out of the fight. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's not like it was fourth edition where you're out for an hour. Or right. Where you have Bone Devil who uses fear aura and you're running for 1d6 plus six minutes away from the devil. Right. It's just disadvantage on your attack rolls. Suck it up, Nancy. You can pick up a pick up a fear <laughs> spell, do yeah. something like that, which is what. I'm sorry, I'm I'm ranting. <laughs> <laughs> so so that that brings me to to another turning point. Um, so you have created your own game, uh, yeah. which is Shadow of the Demon Lord, and it deviates from five E from D and D in a number of important ways. So obviously you took your years of experience and knowledge and writing and consideration of role-playing game rules and uh, and distilled that into Shadow of the Demon Lord. What are the top like two maybe things that you that you did in Demon Lord that you felt uh, improved on a 5e model? Um, sure. Uh, I, I want to preface this by saying that Demon Lord was not a re, not fully a reaction to the design that 5e took. 
uh, Demon Lore was uh, was an effort for me to create a role play tabletop role playing game that I re that I would enjoy to run and play, especially if I'm six beers in. And uh, I, right, I've seen right. you do that. Yeah, <laughs> it was never meant to replace Five E. It is a different game, just like you game. wouldn't right. have Shadow Run or. The Dresden Files replace 5e. It's just different games. I'm just right. really glad you don't need a whole block of d6s for it. You don't need a whole block of d6s for it. No, no, no. Uh, so I thought with this... Uh, so there are two things that I did do that uh, I'm pretty happy with. And the first one is... I'll do the easy one first. Uh, Boons and Banes are... I, I'm pretty proud of on that front because what it does do is that it scoops up the metagame that we've all been playing in third and fourth and, uh, and allows you to continue to play that metagame without busting the engine. And So what I'm talking about here is that in third edition and fourth edition, you are bonus hunting. And the reason why you're bonus hunting is because yep. you want you want to mitigate the randomness, and I'm not, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, yep. but for your audience, yeah. uh, uh, it's to mitigate the randomness of the D20. Yep, the, we used to, to have kind of a, a joke in the Atlanta area, we'd go, find the bonus, find the bonus, right. when you so, got close. Yeah, so you're always hunting for uh, different bonus types, combining those bonus types to give you as big enough bonus that you will succeed no matter what the D20 roll is going to be. Yep, um, it is about the size of the bonus. Right, it totally is, and you know, even even it's even hard coded into the game that at a certain point you're going to be. It doesn't matter what your doesn't matter what the target number is. The bonus you're adding to it is so big that you should succeed, and the right. absurdity that plays out in its clearest expression in uh, the Epic Level Handbook, which I do love that book just for its sheer wahooness. But uh, you know, when you're adding plus forty to an attack roll. Why are you rolling at each 20 Anyway, uh, so with boons and banes, boons are uh, boons and banes are like big chunks of bonuses. And for D and five E fans, it's kind of like advantage and disadvantage, except that uh, you either have advantage or you don't, or you have disadvantage. And really, pretty much, that's the end of the story. With boons and banes, however, you're rolling a D six with your D twenty, and what that D six does. Is does does put a control on the fickleness of the D20 die, but you can also roll with any number of boons or any number of banes. Boons and banes cancel each other out for die for die. So if you roll a D20 with one or more boons, you add the highest boon rolled to your D20 roll. And if you have a bane in your roll, you, you roll a D20 with your banes, one or more banes, and you subtract the highest bane from your D20 roll. So what that means is that it empowers a game master to hand out more boons or impose more banes based on what's going on in the story rather than chasing down the particular corner case rule that would give you this thing. Because the worst that can happen is it's a minus six or a plus six. And I find that's liberating as a game master when I'm just trying to, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the thick of it, when I'm in the trenches and I'm trying to make decisions fast. I don't have to worry about a plus two circumstance bonus that comes in the form of uh, because I'm standing on the lee side of a mountain in a winter in a snowstorm. I'm thinking more about 
hey, this character just did something really cool. Let's give another boon to his role, and it's not going to make any difference. It will make a difference, but not that make that big of a difference. Right, right. Yep. So boons and banes I get all hot and sweaty about. Uh, the other thing is um, taking initiative, the whole concept of initiative, out to the finishing and putting an axe in its head. Uh, what? Initiative is such a pain in the ass for me. Uh, and the reason why is that we're in storyteller mode, and I'm being descriptive, and players are reacting in a way that their characters are reacting, and then a fight breaks out. And all of a sudden, you have this exercise. It's, it's really like filling out a tax form, where everyone has to go through a procedure in order for the story to continue. Uh, and this has bugged bug me for beyond 5th edition, goes back to 4th, 3rd, and pretty much every version of role-playing game I've played from the start. Demon Lord says to hell with that completely, and what happens is that we just assume the players get to go first. The combat round is structured in fast, slow, and end of the round. There are three phases to it. Players can go fast. Once all the players who want to take fast have done so, it goes to the Game Master. Game Master's creatures get to go fast, then it goes back to the players who go slow. If, they, if there are any players who have not yet taken a turn, they can go slow. Then it goes back to the Game Master, and you're at the end of the round, which is cleanup phase. The difference between fast and slow is that fast turns, you can use an action or move up to your speed. On a slow turn, you can use an action and move up to your speed. What this does is that after the first round or so, players are going fast turns because they want to hit the monster before the monster hits them back. So it incentivizes players to act quickly and to truncate their turn so that you're not spending 15 to 30 minutes waiting for someone to figure out what their particular chain of action, you know, their, their, their particular exploit of the action economy to do something really magical when really what they want to do is I want to blast it with a fireball or I want to stab it with a sword or cast a hateful defecation spell or run away. My favorite. Everyone's favorite. Truth. I mean, yeah. So those are some pretty interesting systems. And the neat thing about 5e is that you can always bolt them on afterwards. Like, we love Demon Lord Initiative. Uh, and and have a couple of times used it in D&D because it makes a whole lot of sense. I think you could easily make Fast Turn, that the initiative approach from Demon Lord, a staple, uh, a central feature of D&D with a little bit of work. Uh, yep. you get, it gets messy when you have legendary actions. Um, yeah, layer actions, stuff layer like that. Layer actions. Yeah. It, it does get messy there, but to be honest with you, the only reason why we care about initiative in general, in general is because there's the it's a gamble, right? It's like, do I do I get an opportunity to kill the monster before the monster can do damage to me? But the big thing that I think that a lot of people forget is that characters are so insulated from instant death now that mm-hmm. there's no chance a monster is going to kill you outright. So it doesn't matter when you go. And if it doesn't matter when you go, why are you making every why are you making such a big deal out of it, right? Right. Uh, and the big thing is that if you do side initiative, especially in D and D, where everyone rolls a D six, and this is where it gets a little messy, is the player characters can alpha strike the bad guys, which makes uh, makes makes feel bad for the game master. The compensation is is that you you insulate the monsters a little bit, so they. Some of them get to survive and do the cool thing that gives you an interesting story to talk about once the fight's done. Mm-hmm. 
big <laughs> fan of doing the whole we're just going to go clockwise around the table and everyone go in order type of initiative when it's not like a super critical fight or anything. Sure. Like, you go. Now you. Now you. Now you. There's no wondering who's next. Did the person beside yep. you just go? Then it's your turn. <laughs> so, yeah, simplifying initiative is, is definitely good. And I kind of like the sound of that. Okay, now I, I really want to play this game now. It's good fun. Uh, so, so I know the thing that you were talking about last time we were together that was your kind of next big thing was punk apocalyptic. Right. What is punk apocalyptic? For those that don't yet know. Uh, punk apocalyptic is a tabletop role-playing game based on a miniatures game from Bad Roll Games. Uh, they have a, in Spain... Uh, it is a highly uh, irreverent, vulgar, post-apocalyptic gang warfare-style game. Uh, I, uh, my Spanish translator for Demon Lord reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like to make a role-playing game based on the miniatures game. We think you'd be a perfect fit, and so we made the, we made the magic work. And I'm currently uh, wrapping up, well, working through design on that now. Uh, mm -hmm. It uses a Demon Lord engine, but it's it's pretty heavily modified. Um, but it, in the sense that you've got like eight attributes instead of four, um, some things work a little differently than they do normally. We don't have magic because obviously this is a, a post-apocalyptic game. Um, but it, it it's it's coming together. Uh, we're looking at a June 2019 for the Kickstarter for that. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. Keep our eyes open for that. Uh, yeah, when uh, is that when I cyber? No, it's not really cyberpunk. To no, it's more like Fallout, from yeah. what I understand. Ad Max. Yeah. Yeah, that that is. I was trying to trying to research really quick and see if it fit into my Momocon theme. <laughs> What's the theme for Momocon this year? Cyberpunk. Uh, okay, man, what? we got to talk to Matt about getting those mods out there. I already did. Rob, you should okay, come anyways, good. though. Where is Momocon? I'm sorry, I'm... All the way down in Atlanta. Oh, I see. And All when is that? Uh, Memorial Day weekend. Come be a guest. An honored guest. It's uh, the sister con to Dragon Con. Okay. So Momo's on Memorial Day and Dragon Con's on Labor Day. Gotcha. Alright. See if we can make that work or see if like it. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll get with you and get some details. Please. It's going to be great. Um, Aside from Puck Apocalyptic, the uh, the more imminent release thing that we're working on is uh, the Call of Philosophy, and that's a massive, huge expansion to Demon Lord, and we launched that Kickstarter in November. So, what what kind of stuff does it have? If it's a cult philosophy, it sounds like it's going to be uh, more magic stuff. Right. Uh, one of the biggest requests we've had was expansion of the magic rules. Uh, when we launched the game. I think we had 30 traditions in the core book. Uh, we've since added nine more, and this brings up to a total of 40 traditions. Um, typically, when you play Demon Lord, your spells go up from rank 0 to 5, which means you can do minor stuff to pretty big stuff, like travel back to, an, to a point in the future, or travel to the future, maybe 100 years, or uh, burn down, you know, minor, you know, to the stuff that you expect a character of some accomplishment to do. Uh, Call Philosophy blows open the, the cap and takes you all the way up to rank 10 spells. 
Oh my goodness. Which, you know, if you want to, if you, if you ever had fantasies about putting a second sun in the sky, this book tells you how to do that. If you want to create your own uh, pocket dimension, this book tells you that if you want to wipe out all people of age 12 or younger, and then also make anyone over the age of 12 sterile, so that you completely destroy the civilization, you can do that too. If you want to spell that creates your own new creature that's completely yours, uh, and you decide what it looks like, how it behaves, all that stuff, this book's in there as well. Uh, for, our, for our 5e people, uh, a, a level 5 spell in, in Demon Lord has been about like a ninth level spell in D&D, so I can't even imagine what the, the higher level ones are like. The uh, ranked, uh, ranked they were like what I was imagining when we were working on 5th, uh, I was a real adv- real big advocate for expanding the uh, spell levels to 10 so that we could have really big, sweet narrative spells that would allow you to, you know, because if we're going to have, if we're, po- if we're positing that a thing like the, the Tarrasque is rumbling around every once in a while or a Titan is somewhere in the world, we kind of want to have a story in which uh, player characters could aim for, if they play long enough, to have these really big, super sexy spells. Um, so Demon Lord was an opportunity, a call philosophy was an opportunity for me to kind of realize that vision. And so, so are you allowed to tell us what you're working on next for Wizards of the Coast? Uh, I am. Uh, the last thing I worked on for Wizards of the Coast is uh, the Ravnica book. Oh, so you had your warm little paws in that too. I did. Uh, I got to I got to work on almost all the monsters in that book, almost all of them, and I had a really really good time uh, just exploring that world because I wasn't as familiar with Ravnica as I probably should have been, but I became intimately familiar with the world that time it was over with. Yeah, well, now that you've been in it, I, I, what's your favorite Ravnica guild? Uh, it would have to be the Devil Guys. Um, what are they Red Coast? Red Black? Yeah, 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 yeah. The one yeah. that the, the weird circus guys. Yeah, that yeah. is so awesome. And we did, some, we did some really cool design for that, I think, uh, which I probably can't talk about because no, Wizards... it's cool. Yeah. It's cool, and we're going to see it, and everyone's going to love it. Yeah, it's a really neat... It's a neat book. So what is... Uh, so speaking of Ravnica, I think people are super excited about it. Um... And I'm, I'm not going to ask you questions that are going to bump up against your NDA because I don't want to do that. But uh, what what kind of things happen in the Ravnica world that are going to be new to our t- kind of traditional D&D players? I think the big thing is that the setting supports, uh, it goes out of its way to support a variety of different kind of campaign styles where if you want a very strong role-playing focused campaign uh it's got all the guild information that's going to really kind of help define your character and your place in this setting and there are enough nooks and crannies in the world of ravnica that you can really really dig in and see some really interesting things um because your character and the other thing i really like about this too is that where i think that uh the core set of D gives you some basic guilds that you can align with you want to be the harpers or or whatever the hell you want to be part of this makes your allegiance to one of the guilds a more meaningful and impactful choice Mm. Uh, and it sets a template for other really cool things that we could do 
or rather that we, but wizards could do with other worlds that have a similar kind of structure. Uh, Eberron comes springs to mind. So does Dark Sun. As far as just kind of figuring out what your place is and the overarching umbrella organization or, or institution and how that character, how that can actually shape your character and, and individuate your character from somebody else who makes a similar choice. You planning on getting your paws into any Eberron stuff? Uh, no, I'm not. But uh, I am very excited to see Eberron is making its way back to game tables worldwide. Oh, yeah, no, I'm obviously biased, but super excited myself. Yeah, I, I saw the, the, the Wayfarer's Guide, and it looks really cool. I did give that a good look. Very excited about what's in there. So, so let's talk about the land of make-believe. If, if you ran the zoo, you know, like the old Dr. Seuss book, if I ran the zoo, if you were in charge of D&D for Watsy, what, uh, what book or supplement would you want to publish next? And obviously, there's oh, probably man. stuff you can't talk about. Don't, so please don't talk about that stuff. Like, we're, uh, we're in make-believe land. To be, to be perfectly clear, I have no insight as far as what the future holds for, for Wizards. Uh, I think Ravnica is probably my last book for them uh, as I'm focusing in on my company and it, it's uh, its own development. But if I was in charge of the zoo... If you ran I, the zoo. Yeah. If I ran the zoo, the very first thing I would do would be to bring Greyhawk back. Whoa! Everything I expected. That was not the thing that I expected. That was definitely not the thing. Okay. All right, Why? Greyhawk fans, you found your man. Because Greyhawk uh, is the truest expression of Gygax and Arneson. Uh, it goes all the way back to the roots of the game. It has the ability to allow players and gaming groups to run serious campaigns with high stakes, to go into the bizarre and weird by going by shifting into westerns or gamma world or expedition to barrier peaks all the lore that that everyone looks to about D&D doesn't come from any other setting it comes from Greyhawk you want to go to the tomb of horrors you don't want to go to some knockoff of the tomb of horrors you want to go to the original one because it's really freaking scary yeah. you want to fight the giants you do it in Greyhawk you want to Take on the Queen of Spiders and, and the Demon Web Pits. Loth in Greyhawk is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, Greyhawk is. It, you don't get anything. I mean, all I, this is. No, I'm not. I'm not throwing shade in any other setting for D and I love them all, but Greyhawk is where it starts. And at a certain point, you kind of got to respect where it all came from. And I think that Greyhawk, whoever runs D and D. Or whoever whoever controls D and D should always make always 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 make Greyhawk a cornerstone of the IP. You can't you can't hear it uh, from the recording, but all across the nation there are Greyhawk fans jumping up and down in their living rooms, pumping their fists and cheering and pointing their fingers exuberantly at their screen. This yes this. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That that was definitely not what I thought you were going to go with. Yeah, that's the thing. I I, I adore Greyhawk. That's yeah. my favorite world. And I'm sick about the fact that we haven't seen it uh, in a long time. Yeah, you know, I 
I don't know for sure, but I seem to recall someone saying something about, so treat this with the respect you should, which is, I eat none, uh, that the that there might have been problems with the Gygax estate and the Arneson estate, and who knows who owns what. Yeah, so, those rumors uh, have been floating around. I don't think so. I think that's, that's, I, I, I think that's just rumors. I think as far mm. as I know that Greyhawk is... The fact that uh, Peter Atkinson was able to produce Greyhawk for third as a as a cornerstone of third edition, I can't imagine what could have possibly have changed in that time since he purchased TSR all of it. Right. Uh, that it would be any kind of conflict. If the only thing that could come to mind would be Blackmore, but right. uh, that's a shared world thing. It's part just as much part of Greyhawk as it is a part of Blackmore. Mm, okay. That's fair. That's, that's yeah, Castle Blackmore. Here's a valid point. I think the biggest problem that Greyhawk has, as far as ever being realized again, is it's 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 manifold. Uh, one is that there are a lot of people out there who know Greyhawk better than anybody who designs professionally, uh, and so you're sure. going to have a really angry audience when there are changes to the canon or uh, I'm not going to say mistakes, but you know changes. Um, the other thing too is that Greyhawk is such an integral part of D and D that it's hard to separate what is D and D from what is Greyhawk. You look at Second Edition D and D and how that was presented. You didn't have really any lore in the core rule books. You had right. you had Big B and you had Morden Kanan, but there was n- almost nothing about setting baked into those books. Uh, if you wanted to learn more about Greyhawk, you went to the Greyhawk books. Um, or any of the rabid Greyhawk players. Right, 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 right. I don't know that there's... I don't think the Greyhawk will ever be a moneymaker enough for uh, for Wizards to mm-hmm. ever see it be realized in a way... And I would love to be wrong, and I'm sure that there are people out there who are uh, who have secret plans and, and designs to prove me wrong, but I... Doubt we'll ever see Greyhawk anytime soon. Yeah, I think there's a, um, I think there's a remnants of the Living Greyhawk campaign that still run um, and publish some 5e stuff up in the northeast somewhere. I want to say it's the regulators okay. or the guys who used to be the regulators who who are doing it, but it's pretty small as I understand it. There was still a group doing it in. Chattanooga up to like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool world. It is a cool world. It is a cool world. That's kind of where I cut my teeth with organized play and it will never yeah. it will never not make an impression on me. Convincing. So so organized play. That that actually is another good question. Jenny was probably gonna say, Hey, we're close to out of time, but I still have more questions. No no So so Shadow of the Demon Lord is a great RPG, one I certainly enjoy very much. But there's not an organized play system. Is that something you just don't have time for? Or is it an intentional decision that you don't want to go with organized play? No, I love organized play. I love what organized play does for games. Um, the thing to remember is that I'm, I'm still basically a one-man operation with devoted contractors who help me make the best stuff I can make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are only so many... There are only so many pieces of my headspace I can carve up. Yep. And Why don't you big, just cast a clone spell? I really should, right? Oh, I mean, my God. Do you not have, have the available resources? 
I just don't have. I didn't have the material components for this spell. Okay, we can do a um, Kickstarter for material components. And I also live in the south, so I can't cast a simulacrum spell, so I can't make my snowman sculpture of myself. Right, right. It's all very poor, no matter how I look at it. Um, I'll, I'll send you I, snow in a couple of months. Thank yeah. you. I think the organized play component is probably something we're going to do sooner rather than later. The big thing, though, is that we have like over 30 adventures published for the game. They're between a dollar ninety-nine cents and two bucks. Uh, there's no reason why people can't just play these in stores. Right. Well, I think people like the idea of you know rules of organized play being sure portable and blah blah blah. Right, right, right. Um, the, the thing with the is it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we're not we don't even if even if we do go to an organized play component, I don't think that that would be there would be a an overlay that would alter gameplay in any major way, right? No, it really shouldn't be. Yeah, and it's not like Shadow of the Demon Lord adventures drop a whole lot of, like, hey, this is my plus one flame tongue. Yeah, because you're not chasing down treasure, and yeah. you're trying to survive. Right. Uh, so uh, there's... And the other thing, too, is that Demon Lord campaigns are 11 adventures long, so even if you do do something goofy and you find some broken combo... Who cares? You know, the Demon Lord's going to win in the end, and the Game Master can always drop something heavier. <laughs> yes. Yes, the Demon Lord can always drop something heavier. Okay. The Demon Lord Truth. shall overcome. That'd be cool. I think, I think people would eat that up. Are you thinking about perhaps having an element that's kind of like uh, DM skilled or, gosh, what do they call the vampire one? The, the vampire version of the DM's Guild, or I think there's a Call of Cthulhu, Keeper's yeah, Vault. Yeah, we've got, uh, we do have uh, Disciples of the Demon Lord, and it's up and running on one bookshelf on DriveThruRPG. Mm -hmm. If you want to create content for Demon Lord, you are able to, right now. Then yeah, he's already doing it. Yeah, I didn't know that. Awesome. Already in the works. Already out there. Yeah, that is that is an idea that we will not be able to put back in the bottle. What do you what do you kind of think about that whole DM's Guild? Uh... Kind of idea. I think it's a great, uh, a great approach. It allows uh, wizards to preserve uh, some control of their IP uh, and some control of their rules. Um, it allows people to play around in a sandbox that they normally wouldn't be allowed to play in uh, and do it in a legitimate way. I like the fact that a lot of the art assets are made available to creators. Um, I think the there are some particular rules in this that I don't really like, you know, like the, the split of profits is a little tough on the creators. Uh, it's not like we're making tons of money anyway. Right. Uh, the fact Nobody goes into writing role-playing games for the fat loot. Right. And then the fact that you can't put your company logo on the cover, I felt was also kind of poor, uh, but whatever, it's fine. It's good. Uh, the one thing I would advise people to do though, is stop, stop publishing, pay what you want. Yeah. Please Bye. don't publish. Pay what you want. You're only hurting yourself. And right, and everyone else around you. I mean, it's, it's that's true. Yeah. I I I can offer you several, uh, basically treat uh, uh, whatever really long declarations on why pay what you want is not good for anybody. It seems like a good idea, but it's 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 not. It's not. 
um, my fellow DMs Guild creators will give you their treatises on why it is the worst. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that I, from, on my end, it's that margins on RPG products I make are, razor, are pretty thin anyway, uh, and cutting my own throat in order to get exposure is though just like having just like doing a bunch of work for somebody for no pay but for exposure it's the same same thing yeah after you cut your throat you might as well go stand in a blizzard just to make it quicker right so what kind of what kind of stuff are you seeing on disciples of the demon lord thus far so far we're really focused on adventure content and that's what i'm really looking for uh because i think that one of the things I think every role-playing game needs, but is really expensive and difficult to produce, is adventure content. Yeah. Uh, yes. There are a lot of game masters out there who will make their own stuff, and that's fantastic. Um, but to be honest with you, is that if I'm a 44-year-old guy, and if I'm going to pick up a game and run it, I don't have the time or the wherewithal or, or the interest in penning together, penning some grand adventure, I want something that I can do cheaply and quickly so I can get the play experience, sink my teeth in, and get, and get an idea what the game's about. Um, so we're looking at more, we're hoping that we're, we've got a couple companies out there that have uh, put out some, some solid adventures so far, and I'm hoping to see more. And as we get a little further along, we're going to open up to do more stuff like Ancestries and Monsters and other stuff like that. Hmm, cool. I'll, I will have to check it out. Please do. Yeah, yeah. I that's I I love pre-written adventures because they are generally a great framework, and then I can do my own embroidery to personalize them. For sure. And they're yeah. excellent for convention settings. You know what you got. You can figure out how long it's gonna take. Plan it up. Get your players all pre-arranged. Do your thing. Everyone has fun. You go on. You live your life, and then they tell everyone about all the fun they had. Right. For sure. Uh, well, speaking of conventions, what's your convention schedule looking like into 2019? Yeah. Uh, one, so far. Yeah? Uh, I'm doing. Uh, ShadowCon in Memphis. Um, I am going to go to Gen Con. Uh, it will be my first time in Gen Con in four years. Ooh. So do it. Uh, I will probably go to Origins um, and Game Hole Con at the end of the year. Okay. Next game hole con, not this one coming yeah, up real uh, soon. Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm looking at right now. Um, I might work and see if a catacon wants me back again. I haven't been there in a couple of years, um, and uh, looking like in 2020, I will be going to Chupacabra Con in uh, Austin, Texas. That's yeah. all cards. And there's a chance I might be going to uh, Spiel in Germany next year as well. So, Ooh. Yeah, that wouldn't be any fun. I mean, that sounds terrible. Why would anybody want to do that? Right. And you'll have to get down to Atlanta for some stuff. I have no idea what even happens in Chicago, but if you're going to come to Gamehole Con, I'll just find you there. Yeah, for sure. And Winter Fantasy, yeah. There's, there's, there's no reason to stay in Chicago other than the fact that you'll be sitting on the runway at O'Hare probably anyways. Right. Now, I'm also probably going to do Winter Fantasy again. I'm not. I haven't. I haven't talked to Dave yet, but uh, that that's probably in the cards. We had so much fun playing Shadow of the Demon Lord last year at Winter Fantasy. I did too. I had just a really good time at that show. Yeah. 
I have big plans to schedule to play it. We'll see how that works out. All right. I definitely recommend it. I have to make sure I can make it. I, well, I, I, I'm going to run, uh, well, if, if Dave will have me. <laughs> I'm going to try to run the XP track again, because that was a hoot. So that's four of my slots, and then I'm going to spend the other four playing stuff, and uh, depending on what my uh, co-conspirators or friends or whatever I want to call them, are gonna want to do will be what I do. I can probably talk him into doing some demony stuff though. Doesn't take. It's just just think about how easy it is to play and how scarring and terrifying the experience will be. Well, I'm, I'm pretty it's sure it's a good palate cleanser for D and D. Like D and D is this noble bright universe where kind of the good guys always win. They always slay the princess. They always rescue the dragon. But like. Demon Lord? Mm-mm. It is, it is a palate cleanser. Here's it the is... entirety of my persuasive argument. Hey, you want to play some Shadow of the Demon Lord? We get to do some fucked up shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much it, right there. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But it's interesting, because uh, it's funny, because you have so much versatility to work over all these genres. From Noble Bright D and D to Grimdark Shadow of the Demon Lord to other with all the other different games you have you have done, it's uh, that is a kind of versatility we don't really see very often. It's probably probably why I drink so much. <laughs> well, I would hate to think that the Shadow of the Demon Lord is driving you to drink. Oh no, that would never be true. Rob accepts beer. If you see Rob at Con, the Demon Lord does accept beer. Always accepts beer. Okay, well, uh, Rob, it has been delightful, and Paige and I could continue talking to you all night long, but usually people who listen to this only have so long of a commute. So <laughs> uh, we'll do our wrap-up and tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and any other cool things that you want us to put in the show notes. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at RJ Schwalb. That's S-C-H-W-A-L-B. Uh, I would love to be your new best friend on Facebook as Robert J. Schwalb. I'm also on G+. Uh, you can check out my website at www.schwalbentertainment.com. Um, and stay tuned for more news about the upcoming Occult Philosophy Kickstarter launching on November 12th. All right. You can find me, as always, at Jenny Loveday on Twitter, Jenny Loveday on Facebook, and pretty much under my name everywhere that I am on the internet. I got one of them G Plus things, too, but I'm just going to be honest, unlike Rob, I haven't used mine in years, so don't find me on there. Paige? Yeah, definitely not G Plus. Like, I probably have one, but I wouldn't know how to find it. Uh, so you can find me, Paige Lightman, on Twitter, at... Paige Lightman, and that's spelled P-A-I-G-E-L-E-I-T-M-A-N. You can find me on Facebook uh, under the same name or in the 5th edition D&D uh, Facebook group. I'm a moderator there. If you shout out, I will find you. And you can find the show on Twitter at D, the letter N, D, Roundtable. You can also find us on Facebook, D&D Roundtable, or shoot us an email to dndroundtable at gmail.com with any thoughts, suggestions, comments, feedbacks, love notes, or, you know, whatever you want that's not super creepy. 
Uh, <laughs> what? I felt like I needed to clarify after I said love notes. Anyways, that is it for this uh, demon-filled episode of the Round Table. Join us for the next episode coming up where we'll have some more really special guests and cool stuff to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this episode.